developer of the team of the Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except owing to a technical difficulty, or perhaps multiple technical difficulties, is occurring on a Tuesday. He is the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest, and on this edition of the program, as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note. This week, Chris Sale involved recently not only in an incident which saw him cut up a throwback uniform, but also involved in a sort of boycott, as it were, with teammates in the visiting clubhouse of the Seattle Mariners. Chris Sale, is he guilty of insubordination or merely of participating in this country's long tradition of civil disobedience? The answer is yes, according to Dave Cameron. Also in the decision of the program, Araldus Chapman, of course, was recently traded from New York Yankees to Chicago Cubs in exchange for an impressive collection of players, including either Gleyber Torres or Gleyber Torres. In either case, a sound which my Anglo's mouth is unable to pronounce correctly. When discussing Chapman, of course, it is difficult not also to discuss his domestic violence incident. Cameron and I slog both through that and also discussion of the price being paid for relievers. An unfortunate juxtaposition and yet a necessary one. Finally, for reasons that remain opaque, Dave Cameron provides a succinct but intellectually unassailable explanation of marriage practices for the 20th century. You used to have to, like, give someone a cow or something. Be like, ah, you have a really beautiful woman. I want my son to marry her. Here's 12 sheep. That scholarly interlude and others just like it in what's to follow. What's following immediately, however, is a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. Listener does not need me to say it. However, I will anyway. Life is full of work and hassle. A combination of the two equal parts work and hassle. In fact, just as relevant to our ticket buying as everything else. In walks SeatGeek, however, and with SeatGeek, they take out all of the work and subsequently the hassle out of shopping for those tickets. What they do is they pull tickets from other sites into one place to aggregate them, as it were, so that all of the prices available in the world, presumably, are also available to you as a customer. Even better, what they do is to put a grade, they assess a grade based on value to every ticket, so you can immediately see and find underpriced seats, allowing the customer to exploit the ticket-buying market, as it were. And finally, and best of all, honesty is SeatGeek's policy. Unlike StubHub, for example, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from the beginning to the end of the transaction, never surprising the customer with huge fees, mysterious fees, mysterious huge fees. And for having endured this, listeners receive a $20 rebate of their first SeatGeek purchase. Here's how you claim it, what you do. You download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code FANGRAPHS, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S, FANGRAPHS, SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code FANGRAPHS today or at your nearest possible convenience, which marks almost the end of this introduction. One note, one note, this episode, the recording of this episode represented an experiment with a new software, some new software, and somehow while attempting to record with Dave Cameron, I, a dummy, also called lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. So he does participate in the first two or three minutes of the program. I have left it in because what it lacks in substance, it compensates for it with spontaneous and unscripted joys, maybe, is what happens. And in any case, I left it also because I'm a man riddled by sloth. Well, let's stop talking about that. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. 
Am I about to take some sort of oath? <laughs> no, you. <laughs> yeah, this is where no, you swear to only overrate Boston prospects. Wait, why do you? Why are you here, Eric? I don't know. I got an invite from you to. I don't know. It just popped up on my desktop, and I was like, "Sure, I'll do whatever." <laughs> yeah. Well, we had uh, we had. We have we have a problem with call burner, so I'm using this other program. And then I accidentally sent it to you because you were the most recent person to send me a message on Yammer. No, not Yammer. Whatever we use, Slack. I don't care. Slack. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll let you two get to it then. Well, this is great, though. Do you have any uh, you have any questions for for Cameron while you're here, Eric? I don't think so. I'm just plugging away now. I'm going to start on the BJ Upton trade. Okay. So, you know. All right. Well, I'll get to Shipley, uh, and I'll make the table. Eric, when done. quick question. Okay. Yeah. Would you rather have Kyle Schwarber or all the guys the Yankees got? Schwarber. Really? Okay. Yeah. So you're sold on Schwarber, too? Yeah. Seems like everyone in baseball is, and I'm probably just wrong about this. I mean, I don't – look, I don't think he's ever going to catch. No. I think he can maybe play a passably ugly – Left field. Do you think he's Mike Napoli? Because that's my comp. He's a left-handed Mike Napoli. I think there's more bat to ball. The fact that a kid, you know, a kid from the Midwest, who, you know, small college, well, not small college, but like small for baseball, yeah. has ascended this high already and is already this sort of offensive force. You know, I think, I think it's really special. Mike Bauman and I were stumping for him so hard pre-draft. Because, you know, Mike was in the Midwest, and I was in Pennsylvania and saw him at, like, Penn State and stuff. And it was just – it was probably the most impressive college hitter I'd ever seen at that point. Oh, wow. But, uh, but yeah, it's – um, but, yeah, I like Schwarber. Okay. Carson, we're talking tomorrow, right? Uh, tomorrow or Thursday. Let me uh, – allow me okay. to – let me check my agenda, buddy. It's fine. I'm, I have nothing else this week. All right. Go, go, go away. <laughs> okay, guys, enjoy your uh, your pod. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. Bye. Are we going to include that in the pod? I think so, yeah. <laughs> Maybe cut out the part about me saying <laughs> and all that. Yeah, I had already marked that down, but now I have another thing to delete, Dave Cameron. <laughs> I'll stop telling you what to delete now. Okay. Except for the, except for the rest of our conversation. Yeah, right. Well, just delete this whole thing, yeah. Oh. Yeah, so uh, this is all an experiment. But uh, hey, isn't isn't life an experiment, Dave Cameron? Uh, yeah, that's one way to think of life. Largely, it is the the real drawback to life is you really you really only do get one go around. And every new age, you obviously gain knowledge, but every new age um, is just uh, it's just terrifying. Like I mean, new age, like like twenty nine, thirty, thirty one. Yeah, right. Like it's your first time you've ever done it, so you don't you don't know what you're what you're up against at that point. Yeah, but you could use Bayesian theorem to assume that it's going to be very similar to the previous one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you don't know, use Bayesian a... theorem on your birthdays. <laughs> but uh, but don't you think? Uh, but no, but you're learning new things all the time. Like there's the first time you, like for the, for example, this past week. It was my dog for the first time. She had gotten vaccines before, but I don't know. We got her like a Lyme vaccine. And the next morning, like she couldn't use her back legs. That was terrifying. Yeah, that's scary. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was she, and she was real ornery and lethargic. But then, um, 
uh, uh, by the afternoon of the next day, she was exactly like usual. So it wore off. But we didn't know that that was going to be the case. Right. So this is the first time we saw this. Do you know what Liberty did this morning? No. Was it adorable or terrible? Uh, a little of both. So, okay. like, you probably know I, I stay up fairly late working, and then I yeah. I sleep in a little bit. Uh, but lately, uh, this is now the third or fourth time in the last couple of weeks, at about 7.30 in the morning, which is earlier than I usually get up, Liberty yeah. jumps off of our bed where she sleeps, crawls into a little cubby hole between my bed, or like my side of the bed and a, the dresser, scratches at it and moans like she's terrified until I wake up and comfort her. And we have no idea what's scaring her. Wow. So there's some noise or something in the house that's freaking her out to the point where she has to be, she has to wake me up in order to calm her down. She does not like it. She is not a fan, yeah. We think it might be the coffee grinder, my wife making coffee in the morning, but my wife's made coffee her entire life, so. Even since she was a little baby? Um, probably, yeah. I think that's false. Yeah. Listen, um, <clears throat> this is, uh, uh, Practical Analytics part of the program in which we attempt to uh, utilize some of the same tools we use for baseball analysis, apply them to real life. Dave Cameron, this one's a very short one, and it actually dovetails. We've done a lot of dovetailing recently. It's my favorite bird, the dove, obviously. And the, in, 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 in particular, I love the tail part of the dove. A little dovetailing with your piece about Chris Sale in which you were t- talking about what effect his insolence <laughs> Might have on his, on his on his market. Yeah. I want to talk to you briefly. Ask you briefly a question about markets. Okay. Uh, I went uh, two days ago to a local greenhouse, and i I bought grass. I bought reed grass for twenty dollars in like a gallon jug. I bought reed grass, and it's a product that's very similar to what you find just alongside growing wildly okay. alongside the roads in this region. But I paid twenty dollars for it. Why did you do that? Well, it's interesting. Now, now the now the greenhouse sells it for twenty dollars, and presumably they've sold it to other people besides me for twenty dollars. Is it even if there is a market for an item, is it necessarily a wise item to purchase? No, is, there are a whole lot of foolish. Yeah, no, there's there are entire industries devoted to foolishness, like the supplement industry. <laughs> Hmm. What are people buying when they buy supplements? Sugar, water. No. Or, you know, like the compound of one one millionth of a fish oil, and then they're like, oh, good, I don't need to eat healthy now. I took this pill. It's definitely better. So so even, so even there are markets. Now, you know that I'm an idiot, but uh, what you're saying, you're, so you're the saying listeners. is, what's this? So do the listeners. There are, so it can it can it can occur like there's demand for an item yeah an item that i think the word you would use that uh, ec- economists would use would be an item that offers no utility really yeah and yet uh is still sold um at at a certain cost i mean i think what, what one of the best examples of a made up demand uh is diamonds right so like the diamond industry is one of the biggest rackets in the world. Uh, like, diamonds are super plentiful over in Africa. There's lots and lots of them, but they're, like, the De Beers Corporation has lost power recently, but especially in the 1900s, they basically created a cartel to control the flow of diamonds everywhere, and then created a really clever marketing scam that told, uh, 
future husbands that the way to prove to their wives was that they were, you know, financially capable of taking care of them was to spend three months worth of their salary on a worthless rock that was, that was a great supply of, uh, where demand was artificially constrained. And people bought it. <laughs> like, this became, like, the tradition of, like, here's how I'm going to show you that I can, like, take care of you for the rest of your life, is I spent three months of my salary on a worthless rock. Because I'm not, I'm not smart enough to figure out some other way to show this to you. And now, most of the people in America buy diamond rings. They get engaged. And, like, the diamond corporations have made tremendous amounts of money on a worthless product. Are you suggesting that the, um, and I'm perfectly willing to believe you, that the, the tradition of giving a diamond for engagement purposes is not particularly old? No, right. It's only like uh, 70, 80 years old. It goes back to like, the, I think the, the 40s or the 30s, somewhere in there. It's it's yeah. a recent tradition. In addition to uh, whatever um, sort of ethical questions one might ask about this trend you've just discussed, there's also the fact that they've been, I think they've done a lot of exploiting of people oh yeah right the diamond corporations are not not someone you want to just be supporting because like well they sell a worthless product but at least we're supporting the beers uh this is this is a, a a bad industry that's done a lot of damage to a lot of human beings just Did to you... line their own profits and have tricked a lot of people into uh including myself i mean my wife's wearing a diamond engagement ring and a diamond wedding ring like we are not immune to the pressures that they they've created but even with the knowledge of like this whole thing being a scam People still just go along with it because that's what we do. So, so what you're suggesting is that, so, is the, the, the way that they've sold it, and this is in probably the same technique that's been used to sell not only supplements, but many products is by creating, and this is what advertising does, right? Yeah. By creating demand for it. Yes, they artificially created demand by essentially convincing people that the diamond was the new dowry. Like, you used to have to, like, give someone a cow or something. Be like, ah, you have a really beautiful woman. I want my son to marry her. Here's 12 sheep or something. And Mm -hmm. then we moved away from that. And now it's like, oh, you're really beautiful. Here's a giant rock. I thought... So, wait. Okay. Advertising creates irrational... Oh, yeah. So this is is a problem with... This is a problem with sort of, like, traditional orthodox economic theory is that it, it assumes rational actors. And yes, right. So like, but you can, you can have someone be rational, like, uh, you can have the market be rational even if the people within it are, shouldn't be valuing the things they're valuing, but you can still say, okay, even if like they're putting an irrational value on that object's intrinsic good, that like the market is saying that is the object's value. So I bought a pot of feather reed grass. Yeah. Um, not necessarily, not necessarily a strong purchase, even if other people are willing to pay it. Do you know why it cost twenty dollars? Because uh, they figured out that that's about the price that people will pay to maximize their profit. Like maybe it should only cost five, maybe it should cost fifty. I don't know. Like I don't know how much time and effort was spent in collecting grass in Maine, uh, but they've <laughs> essentially decided that twenty dollars is the clearing price at which they can sell enough to justify them going and cutting more grass or mowing mowing their lawn or whatever they collect this grass to give you. Uh, and that's the price that people will decide, yeah, it's not worth my time to go cut my own grass. I'll, I'll buy theirs. Well, I don't traditionally make appeals to the listener, but if anyone does have any information about reed grass, feather reed grass, also called Carl Forrester reed grass, I'd love your input. Why, why did you buy it? Are you planting it or are you using it as like I, a hat? Well, 
planting it. Yeah, I did. I'm planting it because we have some, um, because where because we have some um, some water. The way it flows around our yard is creating some an erosive effect up against the foundation. Right. And so I wanted to plant something, a grass in particular, which would be hardy, uh, to prevent the flow of water. Okay, so you're basically trying to start a lawn. But you have to understand, feather reed grass is very tall, and also it has it has uh, attractive qualities to it. It's, this is not grass that's just on your lawn. Okay. It's an attractive long reed grass. Yeah, I know. Whenever I see long grass in someone's yard, I'm like, it's oh, like, how attractive! It's three to five feet tall. It's an architectural grass. Yeah, I would never think, oh, they should mow their lawn. Those slobs. I'd this be like, look at that beautiful architectural reed grass. Ugh, you're really terrible. Uh, on the topic of Chris Sale, <laughs> you wrote you wrote about him. You, in particular, concerning his, um, I don't know. Is it? I guess it. Well, it depends who's telling the story. It could be an act of uh, insubordination, which I think is how the White Sox phrase it, right? Yeah. Or alternatively, it could be a, uh, it could be a, uh, a rebellious an act, act of defiance. An act of yeah of uh, of uh, personal defiance, inspired defiance, yeah, civil disobedience. Chris Sale was sh- shouting at power, <laughs> right? Cutting so up, telling, cutting speaking up truth to power, speaking truth to power, speaking truth to power. I don't know if Chris Sale's uh, truth is a hard, uh, strong word for what he did. Maybe just speaking to power in general, right? Can we call it an act? Uh, one version of it is an act of civil disobedience, sure. sort of. Okay. Um. I want to leave that alone for a second. Uh, I want to get to another point in which Sale also recently participated in another act of civil disobedience. This one perhaps with a bit more uh, um, backbone of like a deserved righteousness to it, if that makes sense. But I might also be wrong. I know the very bare bones, and I'm asking you to fill in all of the details, that the White Sox did not... When their most recent visit to Seattle, yeah, they did not, as is customary, tip out the visiting clubhouse attendant. Correct. Typically, so far as I know, it's customary to give something like seventy dollars a day. Does that sound right? Yeah. To to cover the expenses, whatever. They did not do that because apparently the Mariners have instituted a policy whereby they collect upwards of sixty percent of that. Not, not upwards. They collect exactly 60%. Exactly 60%. Yeah. And then the clubby himself or herself, probably himself though, only gets 40%. Yes. So, like, I, I mean, so I'm not an expert on clubhouse policies and politics. And this is, uh, you know, something that I am essentially re- relaying information from other people who have been in the clubhouse and I've talked to them and said, hey, how does this work? Uh, so this is not first-hand knowledge, right? So I do not claim that any of this is correct or that I have special insight into how this works. But my understanding from talking to people who have been in the clubhouse and understand how this is supposed to work is that um, clubhouse attendants, uh, usually there's like a clubhouse manager and then he has employees. They are responsible to choose uh, for the visiting side uh what kind of food and services they get. So like they basically provide the post game spread and the pre game meal. And so like if a player wants to just come to the clubhouse and have lunch instead of like going out to eat in town while he's on the road, uh, the clubhouse attendants provide that for them. They don't have to pay for it. It's just there when they show up at the, at the park. And then after the series on their way out of town, 
they pay the clubhouse attendants, uh, they tip them essentially, uh, and say, "Good job taking care of me for three days while I was in town." You know, here's here's your money. And uh, wait, so who on, on whose dime is the food being purchased? The clubhouse, the out? clubbies. So the teams are not providing the meals for the visiting players. The clubbies themselves are doing it on the understanding that the players are going to pay them back in tips when they're done. So like you're going like a team comes into Philadelphia. Yeah. Right. Say the White Sox come into Philadelphia. They say, "Oh, we love Philly cheesesteaks." Right. And then the clubhouse attendant himself or herself goes out and purchases those himself or herself, uh, and Brent comes back. And this is all something that he has paid for. Yeah. So it's not like they're taking orders. I mean, they're not like uh, Uber drivers, like riding all over town and saying, "Like, here's your Gino's cheesesteak." They're uh, they're basically saying, "Look, well, this is what we do for a living. We are kind of a caterer to some degree. Like, they're not making the food themselves, but they contracted with whoever they've contracted with, and they've decided here's what we're going to feed the visiting players while they're here. And they're essentially trying to impress them uh, so that the the visiting players tip generously and they make a profit." Uh, on providing this service to the visiting players. So if they say, you know, we figured out how to provide good quality food to the visiting players for $20 a person, and those players tip $70 a person, there's profit to be made, and that's how they make their living. Right, and because um, are we to assume that they're not particularly well compensated on the other side? Correct. So I think in the the story that the Seattle Times uh, wrote about this issue, they mentioned that the clubhouse manager – is a salaried employee of the team, but then he has five clubhouse attendants who work under him who all make minimum wage. So oh, wow. uh, they're basically, their living is essentially the tips. Oh, and they, and they receive a, a portion of the tips typically? Yes. So like the clubhouse okay. manager collects all the tips from the players and then distributes them to his attendants probably as he sees fits, but I would assume like in a way that allows them to uh, feel like they're being compensated well enough to not quit. Okay. So what is it that the Mariners have done? What is their policy? So essentially this was all – in every other city in baseball, this is a transaction between the players and the clubhouse attendants and the team has really nothing to do with it. Uh, the Mariners have instigated or instituted they've, – they've done sure, something to put themselves in the middle of this transaction uh, where they basically – they hired a new clubhouse manager over the winter and they – as a – portion of like the agreement of him coming on to take the job, they required him to adopt a new policy that said instead of him getting 100% of the dues to compensate himself, pay back for all the costs of providing the food and and then pay out the clubhouse attendance, the team takes 60% of the money uh, and he gets to keep 40% of the money. And so then the team essentially is uh, getting in the middle of this transaction and they're saying this will cover their own cost in terms of paying that, you know, minimum wage to those clubhouse attendants and covering the salary of the clubhouse manager. And the team is basically saying the clubhouse uh, attendants can keep 40% of the tips, but the team themselves is going to take 60%. And why are they taking 60%? It's a good question. And I think that's why the White Sox decided not to tip <laughs> is because the, they feel that the team should not be involved in this, uh, you know, negotiation or however you want to agreement. Um, they see this as a, a violation of kind of the clubhouse rules. And so the White Sox decided not to tip uh, to protest against the Mariners taking a cut of the clubhouse dues. Right. And so at this point, are, is this, a, is this, a, are the Mariners attempting to profit off of this 
It's hard to know, right? So, like, without uh, being able to talk to the Mariners and finding out if they're changing kind of how this works or if they're going to start paying for the food, I don't, you know, like, we don't know enough. I don't know from our information here to say, like, the Mariners are trying to skim off of, you know, the league minimum or, you know, uh, minimum wage employees and they're trying to take their money. Like, that that's an easy headline, but it's probably not true. There's probably some... Uh, uh, some rational explanation for why the Mariners thought they could do this and not have pushback, and they did. They had their assistant GM Jeff Kingston sit down with five of the White Sox players to kind of explain their side of the story and say, "Here's why we're doing this and why we think this is better." And um, I think the quotes in the Seattle Times piece and in Ken Rosenthal's piece, who first wrote about this, uh, they note that they were just basically trying to track money coming in and going out of the clubhouse. Um, so they looked at it as kind of a, a way to have better information in terms of um, how much things are costing and, and perhaps. You know, maybe from their argument, they could say, hey, look, if we just provide the food, uh, we can drive down costs because maybe we can, you know, we have an in-house caterer and we can sign a contract that gets a better better deal and we can, you know, charge everyone less. Or who knows what they're exactly saying. They didn't, uh, the articles didn't lay out the Mariners case, so I don't want to assume it for them, but I would, I'm going to at least give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not just trying to steal money from the clubbies. Right. But they might be. But from the player's perspective, it appears as though they're attempting to address a problem that is not a problem. From the player's perspective, they, they're, um, the, the team is management, right? So labor is always a little bit skeptical of management involvement in anything, and, and they look at the clubhouses, uh, the clubbies as one of their, kind of an extension of their staff, right? Like they're paying the clubbies directly, they're providing a service, uh, to the players that doesn't really have anything to do with the team. There's no reason for the team to be involved in this. So when the team kind of uh, inserts themselves into this um, situation, I think they become instantly suspicious and say, why are you trying to take the, take our money that we're giving to the clubbies for something that really has nothing to do with you? Okay, listen, I want to state this immediately. By placing it here in the program, I'm not suggesting that this, that this story is uh, more compelling or more more urgent than the trade, for example, of Veraldas Chapman to the Cubs, nor uh, the trade even of Melvin Upton Jr. to the Blue Jays. However, it's I also feel as though it's something that uh, is never addressed or rarely rarely addressed, and, and I, I don't think it's being hushed up. But generally, just this dynamic between the players and the the club, the clubbies, it's a it's a interesting part of the culture to me. Yeah, I mean, this is like a you know one part of baseball that I think fans just never see, right? We just don't have any idea about this interaction or how players' meals are paid for. I and mean, I think the other thing to keep in mind is. Major league teams do pay players a per diem when they're on the road, right? So they're getting meal money uh, from the teams as part of their contract. Uh, like they get a salary and they get meal money when they go on the road. But then they go into, you know, visiting clubhouses and all their meals are provided for them. Uh, and so, you know, obviously have to, they are expected to tip the clubbies and, and compensate them for the food they were provided. But the team could say, hey, look, we're indirectly paying for this food. So it's like probably a somewhat more complicated subject than we got into in our five-minute discussion here. Right. Is it possible, do you think, that the Mariners would, would control the visiting clubhouse so they could get a sense of how their own players are spending their per diems? Uh, Does that make sense? I mean, that would be surprising to me if they were, uh, I think like, you know, if I'm able to talk to a couple friends in the game and very quickly find out what the average due is, uh, in terms of like, you know, $70 per player is generally expected veterans tip a little bit more. It's probably not that the Mariners have less information than we do. I think they probably know fairly well how this dynamic works. It seems like they just wanted to have a little more control over the situation. 
Okay. All right. Well, now I know more because you told me more. Oh, and I guess the last thing to add is this might all just go away because in the new collective bargaining agreement, apparently the players have brought this up as an issue that they uh, are not happy with. And so this could just be in the next CBA. <laughs> they could just say, hey, look, you know, the teams are going to pay for food for the players or the, or the owners agree to just stay out of the way. Like somehow this will probably just get resolved in a few months. Right. Okay. Let's uh, – I'm going to ask you – I'm going to ask you one question about the Araldus Chapman deal, and it concerns the um, Araldus Chapman himself. Uh, yesterday, when August Fagerstrom was writing about it, about the trade, um, sending Araldus Chapman to the Cubs in exchange for Gleyber Torres, in addition to others. Do we think it's Gleyber? I, I would have guessed Gleyber. I have a uh, terrible Anglo, a filthy Anglo mouth. So Should I don't we call know. it Enosaurus and see what he thinks it is? Just do the opposite of whatever yeah. he says. Uh, August's piece begins in what I would say is uh, both an interesting and also somewhat necessary way because he, <clears throat> before he addresses the deal itself uh, and any of the sort of, uh, you know, uh, implications it has regarding dollars per win for relievers or anything like this. Uh, he has a, a, a sort of, uh, not a very lengthy preface, but a substantive preface regarding how um, it's it needs to be, uh, we, we need to recognize that um, uh, Chapman himself is not without his uh, uh, personal flaws, and those flaws are very much on the record at this point. Yeah. And it, it's interesting, he says... Uh, um, he says the real life stuff is just much, so much more important, and it needs to be discussed front and center. And I was wondering, I I, I had this feeling inside of me uh, when I was reading that uh, <clears throat> that I wanted to go back and somehow preface every everything I've ever written. And of course, very little of it is of, of substance, but whatever I had written of substance, analytical substance, I wanted to preface everything I've ever written with these. Uh, few paragraphs that Fagerstrom uses to preface his own things to say here is what's about to happen is I'm going to discuss the the um, analytical baseball or the analytical aspects of this however if this player has done anything that's obviously terrible I would like to mention that I think that takes precedent over what's what's following yeah, I mean, I think the Cubs, even in announcing the trade, put out a statement saying that they had talked to Chapman and, like, they were aware of the issue and they weren't trying to sweep it under the rug necessarily. They were, like, you know, agreeing that this was part of the transaction was that they were acquiring a player with um, some baggage, right? Or I'm not even really sure what the correct term would be, but, you know, a guy who was suspended for 30 days for shooting a gun in the vicinity of his girlfriend. Not, not necessarily at her, but... You know, close right, enough the, to her to be scary. Um, right. And and it was not on a hunting trip. For no, you. right. Yeah, it was in his home. Like right. shooting a gun in your home with other people around, this is not great, right? And right. so um, I think anytime you have this kind of situation, people like us who are not paid to discuss the social um, kind of norms or or kind of, um, you know, I don't think either of us were hired for our opinions on how to make – um, domestic violence palatable to sports fans or where its role should be. I mean, like, I just, uh, it's a challenging place for us to, in some ways because I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I've never been a victim of domestic violence. I've never really felt my life was in danger from someone I was in a relationship with. And so people who have been in those situations have very different feelings and very different 
life experiences than I do, and I don't want to dis- diminish what they have to say, um, but I can't say it for them because I don't know what they feel, and I don't know how they should respond, and I don't know if you're a Cubs fan who's been in that situation, what you do with a Roldis Chapman on your team now. So I right. think it, has to be, it would be presumptive, presumptuous for me and maybe for August to try and speak to that from that, that position because I haven't been in that position, and I don't know how to, how they feel, but I also don't want to just pretend that they don't exist. So, so this is, I, w- I was thinking about, uh, again, uh, another, the sort of like the, the, the existence of Fagerstrom's preface there. And I was thinking that maybe this is uh, at some level, one of the goals of this stricter domestic violence policy, right? Is now you don't necessarily, it's not specifically to demonize um, athletes, but um, and it's not necessarily specifically to take away their money because it's an unpaid suspension, right? Uh, I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily to do that, but the idea is now that there is a sort of there is a sort of mark on the players now who have been suspended. Of course, Jose Reyes is the other one, and there's not a mark on him for everyone. I think as the um, but he received a standing ovation, didn't he, when he returned to, right. to, to the Mets. But that th- th- this is now something that will follow the, the, these players around. And that was not necessarily the case with uh, players who had been suspected of or charged with domestic violence in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think baseball looked at football's issues and said, we don't want to do that. How do we do it differently, right? And I think baseball has not necessarily done any better uh, in the past. You look at like a guy like Milton Bradley, um, who has had multiple run-ins with uh, domestic violence and was in jail for threatening people's lives, and Elijah Dukes, and some of these guys who have, like, had multiple run-ins and just kept getting jobs in baseball. And uh, I think Major League Baseball looked at this and said, we need to do better. And I don't know if they're doing it perfectly, and I don't even know how to judge if they would be doing it perfectly. Like, I don't want to necessarily say, I know what the right form of punishment for this is. I don't I don't know. Um, but it's, at least they're applying some form of kind of incentive to not do this uh, mm-hmm. and say, look, if you – you know, beat your girlfriend or intimidate them or, uh, do some kind of, if you perform some kind of action that is, um, morally reprehensible, it will affect you at your job as well. And I think that's, um, that's a good thing because like, look, you know, there should be consequences for our actions above and beyond, uh, just, oh, well, I got a, you know, TMZ and, you know, I got my picture in the paper and, uh, then people forgot about it the next time I hit a home run. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. And so I think that what the, what the, um, the policy does is to make it uh, is to at least to create the the, the conversation, right? Yeah, I mean, very right. Least. So I don't necessarily know that like the attempt is to like uh, stick them with a scarlet letter, but it's to say like, look, you're just because you're wealthy and you can afford a good attorney, and because in a lot of these situations the women do not have um, the power or the desire to pursue legal charges, and and our legal system isn't always going to keep these guys accountable. That we're not just going to let them off the hook, like just because they can. You know, use the power and money and, and authority that they have in these situations to to wrangle off of a, you know jail time or whatever it would be. You know, what might be an appropriate legal sentence. Um, that Major League Baseball is saying, hey, look, you don't just get to get out of jail free if you're if you're found to be in an instance like this. 
Okay. All right. Now, uh, with all that said, let's do let us do get to the implications, the other sort of implications of the Chapman trade. Um, and I think we could, you know, it's it, uh, you also have to consider the fact that his uh, legal problems probably do. I mean, they they affect his value to some degree, I assume. Yeah, but I mean, certainly they did over the winter. It's hard to see how they did at this deadline. Right. Or if they did, what else? I mean, what what his value would have been if it was if he wasn't diminished, it would be remarkable. Right. You uh, both you and August attempted to understand not uh, I mean the implications of the Chapman trade in uh, sort of complementary ways. Right. He wrote a piece on the recent history of high-profile relievers. You wrote about the market uh, probably in a slightly more general way, you know, attempting to ask yourself whether it was a correction or a bubble. Uh, I mean, starting with August piece first, it's tough, right, to to answer the question, um, was this reliever worth it? Because they don't – they just don't pitch a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, reliever valuation has been a challenge for the sabermetric community for a long time, right? So, like – uh, I mean, when the position's not that old, first of all, like the relievers have only been around for 35 years and the modern day specialist reliever has been around even less than that. So it's not like we have, you know, 75 years of history to go look at. We have, it's like a, a more recent construct in baseball is kind of the modern, you know, seven man bullpen with specialist and matchup guys. And the metrics we use to evaluate starting pitchers don't really work for relievers. Like you can have a reliever with a really good ERA. Because he comes in, loads the bases, uh, and then he, you know, someone comes in behind him, strikes everybody out, and gets out of the inning without letting in any runs. Well, the first guy was terrible. <laughs> the second guy did all the work, but they both leave with the same ERA. So we have these problematic metrics that don't really tell us about the contribution of different players, and you know, uh, different relievers are used differently in different leverage spots, and then you know, some pitchers have to face batters of different handedness and some don't and so how you deal with the quality of opposition is an issue um so valuing like evaluating a relief pitcher's performance which is half of the valuation question is not so easy and i think that's kind of what august was getting at is like look if you have a guy who's like really lousy in non-save situations but he's nails in every save situation did that guy pitch good or bad era would say bad saves would say good neither of those are very good metrics who knows what RE24 would say or WPA or whatever other advanced metric you want to use. There's just not a clean cut way to say like, you know, with Mike Trout, we can like, he's good at these six things. And like, mm-hmm. we can, you know, we just don't really have that with relievers. Right. But the, the, uh, it, it, I mean, it's interesting the way August went about it because really the only way you can look at it, uh, I mean, unless you have some real tools at your disposal is by way of case studies, right? Yeah, I mean, like, when I was talking to August about the pieces, I was thinking, like, potentially you could look at, you know, here's how the pitchers performed before they were acquired, here's how they, here's how those pitchers performed after they acquired, and then August wrote back and was like, well, how do we measure performance, right? Like, what do you, do you want me to use strikeout rate and walk rate? What, uh, what about home run rate? What about only home run rate in high leverage situations? What about blown saves? Like, I mean, like, what number should we use to try and define whether a pitcher even pitched well is a, challenging question in and of itself and that's even before you get to the question of like if he pitched well then what's he worth and so if both questions are challenging you can see why this is a little bit of a uh, a puzzle that we have not yet solved right and if he pitches well except for uh game seven when he's asked to close out a game or preserve a tie 
then was it was it worth it at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things is you see whenever a team makes a trade like this at the deadline, especially for rentals, you always see someone say like, if they win the World Series, we won't care about that prospect we traded. And it's like, well, trading for this guy doesn't guarantee he's going to win the World Series. It doesn't even guarantee that guy's going to pitch well in the World Series, right? Like Johnny Cueto was pretty terrible for the Royals last year after they traded for him. And they gave up a decent haul to get him to be like the you know the number one starter in the rotation. He was so bad down the stretch for them, they didn't even let him be their number one starter. They had your Dono Ventura as their number one starter and had Cueto as their number two. And, uh, and Cueto wasn't even very good in the postseason. He had a couple good starts, but he, uh, you know, had a couple of bombs as well. And then he had one amazing World Series start where he threw a shutout and helped the Royals win the World Series. So did the Johnny Cueto trade work, even though he was pretty bad in the regular season and pretty mediocre in the postseason? Or, uh, did it not work because of that? Or did it work because he had one great start that helped them eventually win the championship? I don't know. And, and, well, this also, I mean, you can ask the reverse question, right, of Clayton Kershaw? Right. Who clearly is responsible more than anyone else in the Dodgers for that team's, uh, you know, whatever their success has been over the last few years. And yet, uh, <laughs> his performance in the postseason, uh, I mean, he's had some, he's had some notably difficult ones. Yeah. He's, uh, I think he's running a career ERA over five in the, in the postseason. The Cardinals beat him up a couple times a couple years ago. Right. You look at Clayton Kershaw and be like, He's the best pitcher in baseball, but having him in the postseason has not helped the Dodgers win a World Series. Uh, does that make Clayton Kershaw not valuable? Of course not. Clayton Kershaw is a super valuable pitcher, you know, still the best pitcher on the planet. Um, but how do we value kind of the idea of signing Clayton Kershaw to a long-term deal? Has that been a success? I would think the answer is pretty easy, obviously yes. But if you're just judging based on postseason success, you'd say no. And a lot of what we're going to look at it with a role with Chapman is like, how well does he pitch in seven or eight or nine innings in October? That's kind of unfair. So, so what's your ultimately what's your verdict on why clubs are willing to pay so much more for relief help than what it might otherwise seem would would make sense, just given the typical you know linear value of wins, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I think each case is a little different. I think specifically with the Cubs and Chapman, I think we have a, a pretty unique set of circumstances where this is the best team in baseball by a lot, and they didn't really have anywhere else to upgrade, right? Like, you look at their lineup, and it's like, who are you going to replace in their starting lineup? Like, you could acquire some kind of, like, depth outfielder, I guess, but with, like, you know, Jorge Soler is not that far from returning from the disabled list, and then their normal starting outfield of Wilson Contreras, Dexter Fowler, and Jason Hayward, and you don't really want to bench any of those guys. You're not going to trade for anyone better than those guys. Um, and they have Albert Almora around, and they, Ben Zobrist and Chris Bryant can both play out there. Uh, Javier Baez is, you know, having a good year as a, an infield guy. Tommy Lestella gives you a Have you even said Tommy, Tommy Lestella's name yet? Yeah, Tommy Lestella gives you a nice platoon option against right-handers. Like, that's... That lineup is fine. I don't, you're not going to acquire anybody better than what they have. And then you look at their starting rotation. It's one of the best in baseball. Their, their five starters are all very good. So the only place for the Cubs to upgrade their team really is in the bullpen. And specifically, they have Pedro Strope and Hector Rondo and from the right side, but they, they were a little weak, on, weak from the left hand, uh, from the left side. And so Aroldis Chapman and Andrew Miller were the guys who you could look at and be like, these guys will make a significant upgrade over what we have. But they both played for one team, and so they they were basically stuck dealing with the Yankees and saying, hey, we want one of your two or both of your left-handed awesome relievers. And the Yankees kind of were in a position where, like we talked about in the Chris Sale piece, they had all kinds of leverage because there were just weren't any other teams out there selling what they had to sell. And what are your thoughts on Ryan Buchter? Uh, he's not as good. Okay. <laughs> but I actually, I'll be honest. 
I had not really heard his name uh, before. I think was it August who wrote about him recently? Yeah. I mean, I think he's a what a, a pitch up in the zone guy with bad command. So you could look at him and be like, look at this great strikeout rate, and he's like really good against left-handers. But then he could get in the postseason and just walk everybody, and you're like, man, I really would have rather had a role this Chapman. Yeah. And who is not walking? Who's walking right. half the people? Yeah. I mean, a role this Chapman. I think we talk about relievers being fickle and their their performances being inconsistent, but like. I don't remember a time where Rollis Chapman hasn't been good <laughs> since he got to the big leagues, basically. Uh, he's about as sure thing as relievers get because he throws 104 miles an hour. <laughs> uh, well, will the Braves trade Mauricio Cabrera? No, no. Probably not, I assume. But I think but they will wait for him to figure out how to throw strikes before trying to auction him off. Is Michael Kopech going to be good? Uh, I mean, with any pitcher, who knows, right? Like, especially okay, an A-ball yeah. pitcher with velocity and no command, like... Could be good, could be terrible, could be anything in between. I think at the velocities that guys are throwing now, we have no data. Like, what do do we know about the aging curve of a guy who throws 105 when he's 19? There's no people like that. We've never seen anyone throw this hard at that age. Like, we don't even think Nolan Ryan threw that hard. We have no idea what pitchers like Michael Kopech would do because there might not ever been a pitcher like Michael Kopech before. Right, and if if the listener is not... Heard Michael Kopech's name. He is uh, what he just turned twenty a couple months ago. Yeah. He's in the Red Sox system, and I think he was recorded recently what, throwing one hundred five. Yeah, right? in the minor leagues, he threw one hundred five. I think the, the same day the Red Sox signed Jason Groom, who was the best high school pitching prospect in this most recent draft, and traded away Anderson Espinosa. It was a, a big day for Red Sox pitching prospects. That's right. Yeah, Go, either going or coming. It yeah. seems. Uh, yeah, uh, I will. Okay. Uh, lastly, because I, I I should ask you for. Uh, Professional integrity purposes or whatever. Uh, uh, the, uh, let's see, Craig Edwards, um, suggested that Melvin Upton Jr., who was once, I, I mean, at some level he was the centerpiece of a trade from Atlanta to, to San Diego, not a centerpiece because San Diego was excited to receive Melvin Upton Jr., but because, uh, Atlanta was happy to get out from under his contract. Yeah, I don't know if it's fair uh, to say he was a centerpiece in the deal that had Craig Kimbrell. He was a side piece. Yeah, but he was like a big. He was he was negative forty five million dollars. He was the dollars. anchor that caused you to sell the valuable centerpiece for nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> he was the uh, he was the equal and opposite right. of uh, yeah. Craig Kimbrell at that point. He an was under, negative Kimbrell, maybe. A what? An underpiece, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he actually um, he. Turned his career um, around. Yeah, he turned his career around, and he became desirable to a team. It's sort of. I mean, the Padres still are paying almost all of his contracts. So the Blue Jays got him for, you know, like not a lot of money. Uh, right. And I think they gave up like a live arm prospect who is far from the major leagues. So it's not like Upton turned into a guy that everyone was like, ah, oh, man, how do I get Melvin Upton Jr. Right. on my team? Uh, but he's turned himself into a serviceable fourth outfielder and a guy who can hit left-handed pitching and play center field, and these are things that the Blue Jays could use. Right. And it, uh, it it was not it did not seem that, that something like this would have been possible last April or something. Yeah, I mean trade. this was maybe the classic change of scenery trade, right? Like Upton signed a big contract in Atlanta, it went terribly, but the the idea was, hey, this is a talented guy who got a big contract because he'd been really good and he had a track record of success. And it's a little weird that at 28 he forgot how to hit, and so the Padres kind of smartly bet on some talent and said, hopefully we can figure out how to get him back to being a productive big leaguer, and they did. So kudos to the Padres yeah. for this one. 
I mean, he's been basically on a three-win pace every season of his career in which he did not play at Atlanta. Yeah, it's a <laughs> little bewildering why he got to the Braves and just sucked overnight. Yeah, although, you know, I was it caused me to review, maybe because they're similar types of players and have had at one point a similar arc, it, was, it caused me to review Carl Crawford's career. Yeah. And uh, of course, we don't we don't spend a lot of time talking about Crawford, but Crawford had probably Crawford, had more injuries than Upton did, I think. Right, Crawford through age twenty eight, which is his last season with the Rays in twenty ten. Amazing. Yeah, he was so good. He I had, think he he had, had seven win season his free agent year or something. Yeah, right. And I don't. And he has not produced seven wins since. That's, yeah. Yeah, which is six. I mean, five and a half years yeah. at this point. Seems like uh, Andrew Jones could also fit into this discussion. Former Brave center fielder who just stopped hitting after a while. Right, and didn't, but didn't he have like a bit of a renaissance at, he did, the, at end? the end of his career? He, I mean, he came up as like the best defensive center fielder anyone's ever seen, who also had some power. And then he ended his career as like a total defensive liability who slugged homers, which was weird. Well, you call him a defensive liability, but it actually his defensive metrics were still decent. Right. I don't think uh, he scouts was, he was, those, though. He played a lot of, right. I think he played a lot of DH at the end of his career. He was also, he, I mean, he, he was, he, was, he did not look fit. No, he was a big boy. But he must have also, I think as a center fielder, he was always more than his physical tools, right? I yeah, mean, I mean, a lot of it was positioning, a, probably. I'm like, well, I think what was one of the interesting questions is like how much of Andrew Jones' defensive metrics were from him kind of uh, setting up in positions where other guys could have caught the ball. Like, this is kind of always the ball hog question. Is like, <clears throat> he inflating his own UZR or DRS or whatever by catching a ball that the center fielder or the right fielder or the left fielder would have gotten to? Will we ever know? Will we ever know? Probably not. We don't, we're not going to, like, Probably. retroactively install StatCast unless we build a time machine. Which we had used to kill Hitler first thing. Uh, that would be a higher priority than figuring out Andrew Jones' UZR. All right. All right. Okay, uh, you've fulfilled your obligation, Cameron. Hooray, hooray. There is a possibility that none of what we've just recorded will work because that, we were using That would be great. I'm glad we didn't do a test run or anything. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad too, I guess. Hey, Dave Cameron. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. That has been Managing Editor of Fangraphs. Dave Cameron, I'm Carson Sestule. This has been Fangraphs Audio, and I'm about to push stop. Let's see what happens. <laughs>